for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. So when I think about fighting global climate change, global warming, climate destabilization, whatever you want to call it, like everybody else, I immediately focus on carbon. What's my carbon footprint? How can I reduce my carbon footprint? Do I have to buy carbon credits? Are there carbon sinks available? Is there carbon cap and trade? But those of us in the plant-based community know that carbon is not the whole story because we focus on animal emissions of methane, which is a far more potent greenhouse gas. And today's guest uh, shares something that even dwarfs methane as a contributor to the greenhouse effect, which is water vapor, which is to say, when you think about what we've done to our planet in terms of deforestation, in terms of removing all the places on the ground that store carbon from plants um, to the soil, one of the main things that they're no longer storing is water. And instead, it is um, making its way into the atmosphere, not as clouds, but as literal water droplets hanging there off of particulates, which are caused by the tillage of agriculture. And you can see that plant lovers have a great opportunity to make a significant impact on reducing global warming by both advocating for changing agriculture and for stopping deforestation and reforesting you know, Amazon Basin, all the parts of the world where trees should be growing and currently aren't. So before we get to the conversation, I do want to say that I am not a climate scientist. So I really can't uh, responsibly say whether these claims are true or not. My guest is not a climate scientist, although he is a very smart guy. He's a mathematician and a financial guy who's done a lot of research. And really what we're talking about is if this theory is correct, how can you and I and other people um, affect climate through our purchase? purchasing decisions and through our investment decisions. But I will say I'm not an expert. And I, in fact, like four minutes after posting the video on YouTube, I received a reply from someone who um, wrote several paragraphs that I honestly can't understand at all, but I think are trying to debunk this theory. So I'm not going to hold this up as like I, I did the math. I ran the regression analyses. I understand climate scientists. I understand climate science. And this is this is correct because it does seem like it's not a mainstream view. However, here's the thing. What if it's wrong? What if it's completely wrong and we end up reforesting the planet and having sustainable agriculture for nothing? What if what if we stop investing in companies that are destroying the planet and are exploiting workers and it doesn't end up affecting climate change? You know, so here's a case of like, you know, grounding, like you walk outside with your bare feet. There's a bunch of um, medical people who swear by this, that this is real and it's good. There's a lot of people who say there's absolutely no evidence for it. I would say unless you're walking outside into a fire ants nest or the ground is burning and scorched and, and lava is flowing. Who cares? It's probably a good thing to do. And there's almost no uh, potential for harm. So I'm going to present this episode to you with that same 
Um, disclaimer, same caveat. I don't know if this is correct, but I think it's something that we should be doing wholeheartedly anyway. So with that, let's get into it. Marco Vangelisti, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, thank you, Howie, for inviting me again. Yeah, we got we got a lot to talk about. Um, so we were chatting the other day and you mentioned that our fixation on carbon might be um, to the detriment of really fixing global warming because we're taking our eye off some other important balls. So can you? Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I'm just reviewing the material for the course I'm going to teach in, uh, in May. And I, I always talk about the carbon math, which is, you know, this construct that says, okay, we have, uh, you know, we, we have a carbon budget. And the idea is that we cannot emit more than, let's say, 200 uh, gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere before we, we breach the two degrees centigrade, you know, raising temperature from the pre-industrial level, which would be catastrophic. And, you know, and by the way, we have more than 2000 and such and such gigatons of carbon already in the known reserves of uh, fossil fuel companies. And then I stumbled upon the work of Walter Yenne, and I'm going to yank that section out of my, of my course in May because it's actually, at this point, misleading. And the idea here is that we've been focusing on CO2, right? And uh, your, um, your viewers and your audience knows very well that we've messed up the climate in part by um, burning fossil fuels and effectively transferring carbon from the ground where fossil fuels mostly resided into the atmosphere. And by the way, the oceans acted as a massive buffer and absorbed a lot of that excess CO2. And in the process, we've have basically acidified uh, the ocean. And so, you know, carbon CO2 is certainly, you know, a variable in global warming. It is a, a greenhouse gas. But what a lot of people don't realize is that, A, CO2 only represents 11% of the greenhouse gases. And so the big question is, what makes up the vast majority of the greenhouse gases and therefore the global warming effect? Question number one, right? And uh, question number two is, you know, CO2 is not going to kill us, right? I mean, people that are stuck in submarines eventually suffocate when the uh, CO2 concentration goes beyond 10,000 parts per million. And right now we have 420 in the atmosphere. So uh, CO2 is not going to kill us directly. The way the CO2 is uh, causing problems to us humans is because of the energy imbalance the fact that there is more energy in the atmosphere that translates into tremendous events, most of them hydrological, right? We have bigger storms, we have droughts, we have, um, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the, the, the um, uh, just the climate is, is being messed up by, by this additional heat. But the, the question is, you know, CO2 is just one variable. And frankly, if we only had the CO2 to deal with, we would be toast. Because what's happening is that right now we're emitting, you know, an additional 30, 35 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, if we're really lucky, 
we might be able to go to a carbon neutral in a few decades and maybe start drawing down carbon into the ground, which would be great and wonderful. But as soon as we do that, the ocean is going to release the extra carbon that has been absorbing. The carbon has, you know, the the ocean now has 38,000 gigatons of extra carbon CO2 dissolved in it. And as soon as we uh, start drawing down the carbon from the atmosphere, the ocean is going to, you know, release and rebalance. So is that like if I take a a ball, like an air-filled ball, and I hold it down in the bathtub, eventually it's just going to pop back up? Exactly. So the the ocean has been absorbing the excess CO2 that we put in the atmosphere for the last 8,000 years. And we do that not only by putting, uh, you know, fossil fuels into the air and CO2 that way, but also uh, through our agricultural practices. Um, You know, when we plow, for example, we we oxidate the carbon that is in the soil and, and gets basically released into the atmosphere. But this is to say that if we only had the CO2 lever to deal with, we would be toast. So we have, of course, to reduce the carbon emission. That's a wonderful goal. But we have to expand our lens and look at the problem in in a larger context. Okay. Right? So, and the, yeah. So before we do that, I want to um, kind of so that's kind of the, the, the framing of the conversation we're going to have. I want to talk a little bit about you because you, yeah. you are, I don't know, if, would you call yourself an economist or a banker or because right, you, you come at this, like last time you were on the show, we talked about how to do regenerative ethical investing. And we're going to talk about that as well in this context. But right. I want to point out, like, you're not with Noah, you're not a scientist, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm a mathematician. And I happen to um, work in finance, developing quantitative models for a number of years. I was—I uh, even had a stint in an investment management firm where I was part of a team managing $20 billion in emerging markets equities. And I left the industry in 2009 when I realized that a lot of the financial returns were generated at the expense of others or ecosystems. And uh, I think I told the story last time about, um, you know, we were managing money in part for environmental foundations. And then I found that one of the stocks we were holding in the portfolio um, was a palm oil company that had destroyed the habitat of the orangutan uh, in the Borneo by destroying all this rainforest and planting a monocrop of palm oil plants. And that was my moment when I realized what the heck we're doing here. We have financial... um, you know, we're all doing our job and our clients, some of them, you know, environmental foundation are giving us money, which we invest. And in the process, we generate great returns, but we're destroying the very habitat that those foundations were created to protect. So that was kind of my come to Jesus moment. And then, then when I left the finance industry, I tried to educate myself <laughs> uh, about the problems we're facing, you know, how, how the financial system works, how the economic system works. And I got you know, engage with permaculture and we regenerative agriculture with slow money, which is a, you know, a movement to move money in the local economy, uh, trying to support the fertility of the soil. So this connection, uh, you know, finance is so disembodied and, uh, and removed from reality, from both the physical reality and nowadays, even from the economic reality, right? Like think about what happened in 2020, the economy thanked 
and the stock market went up, right? So th- this this connection is really big. And so I'm what I will talk about today is really uh, I'm not an expert in uh, uh, you know atmospheric science. I'm basically just uh, um, a, a passionate follower of a guy, Walter Yene. He's a soil biologist and a um, uh, an atmospheric scientist that has presented a, an expanded view of how to deal with climate change. So this is a brief summary of where I'm coming from. Great, because I feel you know it's important, especially in, in you know the field that I have been in around health and nutrition, and you know the, these days with vaccines and anti-vaxxers and QAnon, that any that it, it feels like there is a an imperative to sort of trust the mainstream. When, or you need extraordinary claims or extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. So mm-hmm. one thing I'm concerned about is that my listeners and viewers are thinking, well, I, I, I haven't heard about this. All I've heard about is carbon. Right. And so like, is Marco some sort of, you know, is he like channeling aliens? Like, where does this right. information come from? Because, because I, I think we have, you know, especially, you know, in the health and, and alternative wellness community, we've gone nuts. And we've right. completely divorced ourselves from science, from reality, from right. evidence, you know, based on, on dogma and trauma. So right. I want to kind right. of ground, ground this in terms of, like, is this different from what other climate scientists are saying, from what, you know, the information we're getting? Um, what's Walter Yanni's... Uh, right. Know, so how, it, how, it how turns well, out... Yeah. yeah Go, go into, and I, we don't have to answer all that now, but I just want to kind of raise right. it because I know it's in my listeners' ears and minds. Right, right. Like, where is this information coming from? Right, right. So, well, it, here's the funny thing is that uh, we've known that the hydrological cycle is really very, very important uh, on planet Earth, but you, somehow... Can you, can you define that for people? Like, what's the hydrological? Yeah, the hydrological cycle is the cycle uh, of water going from the ground being transpired by plants so it becomes uh, uh, you know airborne and then it again uh, aggregates into small uh, you know water vapor particles that eventually um, coalesce into uh, albedo high albedo clouds and then raindrops and then the raindrops fall down to the ground are absorbed you know part of that water get, gets absorbed by the soil some of it flows through rivers and oceans, and this cycle of evaporation, you know, condensation, and uh, uh, that's that's what it's called the 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 water cycle, the hydro- the hydrological cycle. Okay. So it, it has been really, you know, uh, the, the whole uh, fascination with carbon <laughs> uh, started really with uh, with uh, David uh, Keeley in 1958. He basically noticed. Right, he was measuring CO two content in the atmosphere, and he uh, basically the, the famous Keeling curve, and people can just Google that. Sigan, how do you spell Keeling? Keeling is K E E L I N G. Okay, the name is uh, Charles David Keeling. In 1958, he basically presented, you know, this curve where you see. That, uh, you know, during the winter, the CO2 concentration goes up and during the summer it goes down, but not down all the way to where it started. Hmm. Right. It goes up like 140 gigatons 
at the time. And then, you know, another 120 gigatons of carbon in the atmosphere would be absorbed by the vegetation, mostly, you know, the forests in the northern hemisphere. And so there is a, a gap of, you know, 10 additional gigatons at the time of CO2 that would remain in the atmosphere and would add to the greenhouse gas effect. And so he noticed this up and down seesaw that though had a trend upward. And he said, we are, uh, you know, putting more and more CO2 in the, in the atmosphere. And it's a scientific um, uh, knowledge that the more CO2 you have in the atmosphere, the greater the greenhouse gas effect and, and the warmer the planet, uh, the planet becomes. And they could look at uh, geological like core ice cores in, in Iceland. And, you know, they still find little particle of air so they can determine the concentration of CO2. They can actually know the, the temperature uh, historically. And so they, they found a correlation between how much CO2 is in, in the atmosphere and the global uh, temperature of, of the Earth. OK, so that's true. Uh, that's something that and that's I, I'm not saying that uh, we should not go to a carbon neutral economy and that we shouldn't take the carbon back into the ground. Yes, that's a great, worthy plan. It will take us between a hundred and a thousand years to accomplish it. And the reason is because the ocean has acted, the oceans in the world have ad, uh, acted as a, this tremendous buffer, right? We have acidified the oceans. Uh, what does that mean? That by putting CO2 into the atmosphere, the, um, the oceans have absorbed the vast majority of it. In fact, 96% of what we emit in the atmosphere gets absorbed by the oceans. So in my, in my mind, I think like, does that mean the oceans have turned into like seltzer? Like, yes, yes. In fact, they are trying, and that's, that's one of the major, major problems we have is that uh, uh, a lot of the marine life, you know, it's like this uh, very uh, fragile carbon-based life forms that are being dissolved by the added acidity uh, of the ocean. But that's a completely different story. What I want to say is that you really need to look at the big picture and the big picture. And I think there is no um, debate about that. I mean, there's just, uh, you know, earth science. We received every day 342 watts per square meter of energy from the sun. And we re-radiate out to the outer atmosphere 339 watts per square meter. So in other words, you know, we get a lot of energy from the sun. A lot of it, it's re-radiated out to the outer atmosphere, but not all of it. Some of it gets trapped by, you know, the, this, this blanket we have, which is the, the atmosphere around the world, right, around the earth. Um, you know, there is a, a 1% imbalance between the number of en- uh, the, the amount of energy we receive and the amount of energy we re-radiate out, okay. right? And that is what we have to deal with, is this energy imbalance, which causes, you know, bigger storms and and everything else, is something that needs to be managed. Uh, And uh, the the key here is really to look at the hydrological cycle. And the key is really the uh, process of evapotranspiration of plants. So the plants take water from the ground and transpire it. And when you take a gram of water, and I'm using grams because Walter Yen is from 
uh, Australia and he uses the matrix system. And I think the majority of climate science is in the matrix thing. So people have to put up with that. But for every gram of water that goes from the liquid form to the aerosol form, you need 590 calories. And that's the, the, the way in which vegetation acts a, as a global air conditioning system. By evaporating air, they're basically the plants are moving uh, energy from the ground to the upper atmosphere. And that is the mechanism that we can use to cool down the plant. I mean, that is, you know, we've done, unfortunately, a tremendous job of destroying forests. I mean, there were something like 8 billion uh, hectares of forest around the world originally, and we cut down more than 6 billion hectares. And some of it has revegetated. So now we have three and a half. But, you know, if you need to think about uh, soil covered by vegetation as our natural air conditioning system. So the same same way that I would um, sweat and cool my body down by transpiring water into the atmosphere. um, Yeah. That's what the planet's doing. It's basically sweating to, to stay Right. It's moving. The, the, the evapotranspiration is the process by which you take water and you turn it into vapor and you release it up in the atmosphere. Now, there is a, an additional step there that we need to look at, which is, and that basically in part will um, kind of connect the dots in terms of greenhouse gases, right? I said that CO2 is 11% of the greenhouse gases, Right. 8% of that is kind of methane and nitrous uh, oxide. 80%, the vast majority of greenhouse gases is water vapor. Okay, so water vapor is omnipresent and it's being, so, you know, if, if you think about the journey of a drop of water, right, it's in the ground, it gets evaporated by, uh, by the plant. So, you know, that, uh, takes 590 calories per gram of water evaporated, you know, from the ground up to the atmosphere. As soon as it gets into the air, though, uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of um, haze aerosol micronuclei in, in the air that then allow that vapor to, again, turn into microscopic little water particles and that's the wa- uh, basically the vapor hazes that, that we are dealing with. So once the water gets evaporated, it gets, again, condensated in this tiny little, um, you know, water particles uh, that hang in, in the atmosphere and act as a greenhouse gas. In fact, it's 80% of the greenhouse gases when CO2 is only 11%. So ha- what's the difference between water vapor, a, a fixed to these uh, little particulates and clouds? Because we've had clouds for a long time. Clouds are good, right? Clouds are fabulous. So <laughs> uh, clouds, so the difference is the size of the water particles. You need to aggregate about a million vapor particles uh, to get a, um, a raindrop. And so you basically need to, to have a way to aggregate you know, millions of this water particle to A, first create those high albedo uh, clouds. And by the way, high albedo clouds are reflecting 120 
watt per square meter of energy right back into space, even before it hits the ground. So what's, uh, what's, a, what's albedo? What's a high albedo cloud? What does that mean? High albedo clouds are uh, the very nice white looking, cottony looking clouds that you see. So if you look out yeah, and you see a nice cloud, that's, that's a high albedo cloud, meaning it's white. And what's happening is that uh, when the sun hits it, you know, the, the energy from the sun hits it, it gets just, uh, sent right back into space. Yeah, the, ter- and the term albedo is something about ref- refraction or reflection of light. Is that albedo right? is how much whiteness is there. So an al- albedo, uh, uh, you know, like albino and so on comes from Latin that, that is related to the color white. Okay. So albedo means how white the thing is. Okay. And the idea, and you know the difference, right? If you have a, a, a black surface and a white surface in, uh, in the sun, the hot is going to, you know, the, the black is going to get much hotter than the white. Right. Right. The difference that's is the albedo that's effect. Why you walk, when you're barefoot, you walk on the lines in the parking lot. Exactly. Instead of the, that, that's a perfect example. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the idea is that once you have these hazes, they are a greenhouse gas that is contributing to the problem. How do you aggregate them into high albedo clouds and then raindrops? There are three ways. You actually need uh, precipitation nuclei to do that. And there are three uh, naturally occurring precipitation nuclei. The first one is salt particles, and they are usually generated by waves activities around the ocean. The other one is uh, ice crystals, and those are generated usually at high altitude or high latitude. But by far, the most important uh, you know, rain nuclei are hydrophilic bacteria that hitch a ride on the evaporation particles from the plants and go up into the atmosphere. So this is the, the, the I think this research is fairly recent, maybe in the last 10, 20 years, although actually Pasteur you know, the guy who found the microbes found them in the air. <laughs> so it's not new, but the the importance of um, basically aerobacteria in the air as very powerful rain nuclei that can then condensate this, this vapor hazes into albedo clouds and eventually into raindrops to come back on Earth. It's really amazing. It, it, more than 50% of, of the... Um, um, you know, rain nuclei is is bacterious in the air, and they're just, so that's why, for example, uh, the Amazon forest has many. You know, the Amazon forest generates its own rain effectively because it it uh, um, transpires. You know, all this this uh, vapor into the air, containing this uh, microscopic rain nuclei that then aggregate that and and uh, turn it back into rain and so that is the amazing thing and and what we need to think about the imbalance between the energy we get you know 242 watts per square meter and the energy is re-radiated out 339 watts per square meter is just one percent so to manage the energy imbalance due to global warming we just need to manage one percent of the energy, right? Uh, and we can do that in various ways. One is by reducing the vapor hazes. 
How, how do we create a lot of vapor hazes? It turns out that we put 4 billion tons of clay dust into the air, mostly because of the fact that we created deserts and we do tilling agriculture. And when we till the land, we release dust particles and clay particles into the air that act as a much more powerful <laughs> greenhouse gas source than CO2 itself. So those become the particles, the, the clay dust becomes the particle that the, the water vapors. It creates the water, water vapors, which are, you know, this, this, uh, this um, it, it, water particles are too small to aggregate, right? I mean, they, they still remain in a uh, vapor haze. And then you need a different type of nuclei, the rain and precipitation nuclei. There are those three things that I mentioned, the, the bacteria, uh, the salt. Uh, the clay dust, like blocks like a receptor like it it's preventing the other um particles what, what the dust particle uh, does is basically takes the the vapor and conde- help condense it right so you know think about this when you go from liquid to uh to vapor you need energy right so you that's that's how the plants are cooling the planet is that you know for every gram of water that they turn from liquid to um, to vapor, right? Uh, they take 590 calories. Now, once that vapor, uh, th- that, um, you know, gas form of water, if you want, encounters this little particle of clay, it condenses back and it turns into tiny little water particles, still liquid, but suspended in the air. And that's basically responsible for 80% of the greenhouse gas effects. And then you need something to condensate those smaller, you know, water mm, particles, like in liquid form, but suspended in the air, and to get them into high albedo clouds and eventually into rain, you need the precipitation nuclei. And those are those three things, bacteria, uh, ice particles, and and, uh, uh, salt. Gotcha. So I've heard something about like, you know, ultra high tech approaches to climate change, you know, the uh, you know, Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos's and Bill Gates with, you know, sort of have these techno fantasies of how we're going to use technology to solve it. And I've heard about like carbon tubes, but I've also heard of like seeding. Mm-hmm. Cloud yeah, cloud seeding. Uh, cloud seeding is basically one way. And that's, again, the uh, the idea of engineering the climate is something that makes me shiver, Right. But the science is known well enough that salt particles are rain nuclei that they have been used before. So they basically put some sort of um, salts. I don't remember exactly you know, what they're using, but you can take a plane and spread the salts up in the atmosphere and that will nucleate uh, water vapor into raindrops and create rain. So it has been shown that you can artificially increase the amount of rain in the region by using geoengineering, right? But again, the idea is that why don't we do it uh, as nature does in a natural way, in a safe way, <laughs> rather than tinkering directly, uh, you know, with, with the climate. Uh, frankly, I'm looking at nature and, you know, when people say, oh, we need like a technological solution and they were like... Uh, I think uh, uh, what was uh, Branson said, uh, I'm going to give a million dollar to the guy who finds the best uh, carbon uh, way of capturing carbon. 
I can tell you a fantastic way to capture carbon, and it's called a plant. <laughs> a plant is designed to take CO2 from the atmosphere, right, through photosynthesis and turn it into food for itself, the microbes in the, in the ground, and at the end, all life on Earth. I mean, and the nice thing about those things is they're self-replicating. All you need is really water. And I, I think what uh, Walter Yenne talks about is rebuilding the carbon sponge in the soil. So if you put carbon into the soil and plants are doing that by feeding the microbes and the uh, fungi that are living at the end, uh, you know, carbon residue in stable form in the ground, you know, um, if you do that, for every gram of carbon into the soil, you can absorb eight grams of water. So uh, dirt that has no life in it, if you pour water uh, on it, it, it just will run away, right? But if you pour water into a nice, uh, alive soil that has a lot of carbon content, it will absorb all that water and extend the, the period of which vegetation can do the amazing trick of evaporating uh, water into air and cooling the planet. And there's also the other, uh, the other key idea here is that, uh, uh, you know, global warming is really two parts, right? The first part is how much energy is re-radiating from the earth and what percentage of that is captured by the greenhouse gases, right? So it's two things. And, and, and the energy re-radiated from a warm body uh, follows actually this Stefan Boltzmann uh, equation that basically says that the amount of re-radiation is a function of the fourth power of the temperature measured in degrees Kelvin. So uh, basically the amount of re-radiation is a constant times temperature, times temperature, times temperature, times temperature. So one way, so that's, that's the first part of the equation of the global warming. The other one is how much, um, you know, how thick is the blanket around the earth and what percentage of that re-radiation is kept uh, in the atmosphere. So when the, now, temperature, when the temperature rises just a little bit, it's almost logarithmic in its effects on it's exponential. It's actually exponential. It's, it's the fourth power. So it's exponential. So uh, going that, uh, for example, this, if, if you're looking at, at a surface, right, and you're saying here there was forest, and if you know, you know, the, the uh, land covered by vegetation is much cooler than, you know, a parking lot, right? Yeah, if you go, uh, you know, you go, we go down here, we'll go for a walk in the woods. It'll be really, really hot on the way. And the minute you're in, in, the, in the woods, it's not, so it's not just the sun isn't beating down on me. It's a, Right. So what's happening, yeah. So what's happening, which is amazing, right? So the sun energy is coming down. And if it finds leaves or vegetation, they take that energy and turn it into food. Instead, if they just found a dead surface like a parking lot, it just heats the whole thing up. So, and so, so, so as, as, a, as a thought experiment, you know, uh, my dentist office has like fake plants, like silk, yeah. plastic. Right. If you could create a forest that would have exactly the same biomass and coverage, but it was not real. It was not living. It was just shade 
from plastic and silk, it wouldn't be any cooler. No. Well, it would be cooler just because of the shade, but the amount of energy that would be re-radiated out of that would be the same as if you had painted some green stuff on cement. You see what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. But in a forest, what you do is you turn that that heat into energy and food. And so that's that's a much better. What I'm saying is that, you know, when we're thinking about this imbalance in energy, so uh, 342 versus 339, we're talking less than 1%. And if you think about cooling the planet, if we were to increase by 10% our forests, we would take care of that imbalance, even less than that. The problem is that we're actually burning and destroying 10% of the remaining forest every year. So in other words, yes, we need to uh, stop emitting CO2 in terms of uh, gases, but in terms of you know, fossil fuels. But at the end of the day, we are emitting CO2 in other ways, for example, by tilling the land. Because a lot of the carbon that is in the soil, once it gets oxidated, you know, carbon plus oxidation is CO2. And that gets emitted. So when you till the land, for example, you're also emitting CO2. You know, when they say agriculture is one of the main emitters of CO2, right? It's not so much the gasoline that they're, uh, that they're burning by moving the tractors. is the fact that by tilling the land, you're doing a couple of things. One is you're releasing CO2. So you're turning stable carbon or carbon in the soil into CO2 and goes into the atmosphere. You you put soil particles into the air, creating vapor hazes and increasing the problem of global warming, right? And you're also uh, tending to dry up the land. So the land then becomes much hotter. And, you know, if you you compare like a field that has been plowed versus a field that has a cover crop, right? The cover crop is much cooler. The ground is probably 60 degrees instead of 110. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, you know, agriculture turns out to be, you know, a major lever we can use to deal with climate change. So, um, but if you want to plant a garden, don't you have to till? Well, yes. And I I wouldn't worry so much about the garden. I mean, it's like uh, I, for example, when I weed, uh, I do some weeding in my garden. I leave the weeds in place. Uh, so that the the ground is all uh, always covered, mm-hmm. and then as uh, I plant something in it, you know, I usually make a little bit of space. I plant something, and as that that grows, maybe the the dry weeds either turn into uh, you know mulch and compost, or I might remove that once I know that the soil is covered by something. But it's a big difference, um, you know. Of course, you know, yes, if if you till something, okay. Uh, but it's it's the industrial uh, size that really matters. In my garden, I do disturb the soil as little as I can. I do pull out weeds. I sometimes when I put some seeds, maybe I open up like a little trench where I will put the seeds so at least I can see them, uh-huh. right? But right next to it, I still have debris or sometimes, you know, I sometimes even leave some of the uh, of the weeds. I just trim them down a little bit until I get the plants I want <laughs> to get established. And then they will shade the soil. Gotcha. So we're you, not, you're not talking about backyard gardening here. We're talking about the industrial. I'm talking about the industrial. And in, unfortunately, even organic operations. You know, when you say organic farming, uh, chances are they're still doing, you know, tilling of the land. And really what we need to do is we need to do 
conservation agriculture or regenerative agriculture. And one of the first tenets of that is the soil is always covered by uh, vegetation or by a cover. It could be the, the you know, when uh, the stubbles after you uh, harvest, you know, you leave in place the stubble. I know that around the world, a lot of people burn them. So they turn the carbon that is already there and could be re-digested by microbes and fungi into stable carbon and they volatile it. You know, they, they burn it and, and put it up in the atmosphere. So the balance is really how much of the carbon you burn versus how much of the carbon you're absorbing into the ground. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really key. So I, I've flown across the country. And if you fly across the country and you have a, a window seat and you look down and it's daytime, you'll see looks endless fields, right? Especially yeah. around the Midwest, the breadbasket. Yeah. You know, unfathomable amounts of agricultural land. How, yeah. How on earth do you change the system by which food is produced from them? Because it seems like everything was engineered for giant scale, for machines that are going to sort of till and see yeah. and sow and, and um, fertilize. And, and yeah. Um, well, in part, I mean, the idea is uh, um, changing incentives. We have 400 and something billion dollars worth of farm subsidies to the industrial agriculture right now. And if you uh, go from, you know, having a monocrop of soy beans or of alfalfa or so on, and you want to do some more diversified planting, uh, you're no longer eligible for a federal insurance. You are not longer eligible for those agricultural subsidies. So in other words, we are subsidizing a tremendously destructive way of doing agriculture when uh, regenerative agriculture is way more profitable. Uh, you know, if you if you don't have the subsidies, if you remove the subsidies, you know, the new way of doing agriculture, which is in balance with nature, using uh, the life that is in the soil instead of killing it, you know, you're enlisting it uh, to produce the, the food we need. Uh, there is, I, I don't know if you know, um, David Montgomery is an amazing guy who wrote Pl- uh, Growing a Revolution. He was, uh, um, he's a, a geologist and he wrote uh, Dirt, uh, the Collapse of Civilization, you know, and looking at the historical record of how, uh, you know, the old um, societies would overtill the land and then the soil would erode and eventually the, the civilization will collapse. And then after a thousand years, you know, nature rebuilds the fertility and you start the cycle again. And then, you know, he wrote with his uh, wife uh, a wonderful book called uh, The Hidden Half of Nature, talking about the importance of uh, microbes, both for our gut health and for the health of the soil. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing, beautiful book. And then most recently, he published this book, Growing a Revolution, showing how the adoption of uh, conservation agriculture, even in the United States, is basically way more profitable. He, he basically said um, he took a tour of Kansas and the people that have n- new tractors and nice farms are those that are doing no-till agriculture and are practicing conservation practices. You know, it's a, you can do it on an industrial level. You can do cover crops. Uh, in a, in a large scale uh, farm, so it's not 
And it would be profitable if you didn't have to compete with people that receive 400 plus billion dollars worth of subsidies from the government. You know, corn right now, I think uh, if unsubsidized would be a, a losing proposition. The cost of inputs, the, the cost of, uh, um, you know, pesticides and the seeds from Monsanto and so on do, would not compensate farmers for growing conventional corn right now. Uh-huh. Which I think is, um, you know, in the course that I took with you on investing, we, we looked at a whole bunch of industries that are in aggregate not profitable. Right. right. Like there's there's very little of our industri- modern industrial capitalist society that's actually profitable, according to the capitalist ethos. We're not talking about good for people, good for the planet, spiritual. Well, they're not. Yes, good, if, they're not even good businesses. Right. If you account, you know, that was a study done by the um, uh, the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity, saying that if you account for the cost of the natural capital people use a lot of the industries would not be profitable. You know, if you, if you really had to pay for the real cost of a hamburger, you would pay $200 because you would have to factor in the cost of uh, global warming from deforestation in the Amazon, uh, you know, uh, soil erosion in, uh, in Brazil and so on, right? So if you really factor in the, the cost of using nature for free as we do, uh, very few industries will be profitable. So mother, mother Nature is like this this mafia hitman, right? <laughs> like, oh yeah, take it now, but but you know, in a few decades, yeah. Well, you need, know, we're gonna you know it, you won't even be able to live. Yeah, you know, it's funny when people say, "Oh, we need to save the planet." No, no, the planet will save itself. Nature will fix whatever mess we do. You know, there is no worries. The question is whether we're gonna be around or not. And so we need to save ourselves, not nature. <laughs> so let, let, let me ask you that because um, you'd mentioned that the, um, certain like large swaths of the earth are no longer um, vegetatively covered, like um, deserts. Yeah, and, we created five billion hectares of deserts. So, so I try to, you know, if I if I till some land or clear some uh, some ground on my property and I forget to do anything about it, in three weeks, it'll be covered in weeds and grasses and things. My driveway, which I actively try to keep weeds off of, they right. grow. What happened? Why, why are deserts so resilient to Mother Nature reforesting them or, or revegetating? Well, at a certain point, what's happening is that... Uh, um, Life is possible in the soil because of the microbes. And the, so those are both bacteria, fungi, and so on. Above a certain temperature, you are basically baking all the life and killing it all. So in a desert, it's so hot that there is no life left in the soil. And you need that life to retain the water and allow for additional vegetation. So even in your driveway, if you dig a little bit deeper right? You still have some soil that is alive. You still have, you know, some moisture out there. And the moisture moisture is there because there is some carbon. There is something to hold it. There is some residue of life. You know, the, usually the, the uh, fungi, once they die, they, they live behind the chitin, you know, in their cells. And that turns into glomalin that basically binds the soil together and can allow for water absorptions and so on. So in reality, 
you know, you haven't created a desert yet because there's not a large enough swath of land that you've cleared. But if you get to that point, then the the incident solar radiation will, will heat that land so much, they would cook all the life in in the soil. And then at that point, that's it. Then it's game over. You can't, you know, it's very hard to reverse the, 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 the certification, although it's possible, but, um, you know, it, it takes quite some effort to do that. Mm. The so, idea would be not, you know, not to cut the forests. And that's why one of the things I wanted to do before the end of our talk is show a tool to your um, audience about checking out whether you have any deforestation uh, companies in your investments. Because yeah. I, I guess my shtick has been that all these problems, climate change, social instability, and so on, it's all linked to finance and investing and what we do with our money. And so that's basically the my bottom line is that if you are not happy about where we're going society-wise or in terms of the environment, look at your investments and you probably find some companies there involved in the things you don't want to see happen. Hmm. So so just to, to kind of get wrap my head around the big picture of what you're saying around climate change and the crisis, um, you know, I've heard a lot of, you know, seen a lot of research scientific papers that are more and more and more doom and gloom. Like we've, we're at the tipping point. We've passed the tipping point. There's no way. And yep. you say that they're, they're looking at a, at a narrow slice of the problem. Correct. That we have, we have the tools between just stop cutting down the forests, start regrowing even a small percentage of them, change yep. the way we, we, subsidize our industrial agriculture and that's a clear path to a sustainable climate and all we got to do is do it you know that's the the amazing thing about stumbling upon uh walter yenis work is that i was thinking i was still locked in this uh carbon math things like we are running out of our budget for carbon we're going to be dead fried in eight years no i mean it's like yes we need to intervene and things are getting worse but we have amazing tools that are a couple of factors of, you know, um, uh, you know, 100 times more powerful than just the CO2. If we cool the planet by, you know, a couple of degrees, we can do that by land management, by restoring the carbon sponge in the soil, by switching. For example, if we were to switch even half of agriculture in the United States to, you know, cover crops and no-till agriculture, we would cool, you know, the United States by a few degrees. And that would have, a, you know, even more impact than, you know, reducing CO2. And I agree that we need to decarbonize the economy. You know, the CO2 is a problem, but it's 11% of the greenhouse gases, right? It, 80% of that is water uh, vapor in the air that we can deal with, with the hydrological cycle, with new rain nuclei and so on, or by stopping putting all the clay particles into the air that creates a water vapor. But more importantly, you know, what uh, the, this greenhouse gas thing does is retain some of the energy radiated out by the earth, and that can be controlled, right? The soil that is covered by ground is much cooler than the soil that is barren. And so even shifting a small percentage of the land mass to green vegetation where it was covered with cement or other things can really make the difference. 
And that's a nice thing about it. And I would recommend, I, I'm going to send you a link to a talk by Walter Yena where he goes into the detail of this, is much more hopeful than people think. Because we've been focusing on, on CO2, and yes, that is important, but it's 11% of the greenhouse gases. And it's the mi minority of the problem, both in terms of greenhouse gases and the uh, amount of heat re-radiated out of the ground. And most of it, the big lever we have is land management. Mm -hmm. You know, that's way more powerful. So, okay. so, so, um, so, yeah, so let's talk about what we can do about it. And so, you know, the, what I think of is, oh, well, I'm going to plant a garden. I'm going to, you know, grab, put some trees on my property. Wonderful. Uh, one thing. Now, the second is me as a consumer. Are there ways that I can change my purchasing to affect the hydrological cycle? Uh, yes. For example, uh, you shouldn't have any money with the large banks because the large banks are actually funding a lot of the deforestation. And we can actually look at a tool where you can find out. So, for example, you know, if you have JP Morgan or if you have, you know, the large banks in your portfolio, you are complicit in deforestation. Uh, you know, do not participate in, you know, reduce as much as possible. And actually, I appreciate what you're saying we can all do a little part. I mean, if you even put a little planter out there in your um, cement backyard, you're already reducing the temperature of that area. You know, so this is going to be in part a grassroots movement. And uh, that's what Walter Yen is talking about. There are now, now a number of kind of a generation of farmers that see how powerful what they can do uh, is in effective in affecting the energy imbalance on Earth, which is the result of climate change. Okay, but I was, I was asking specifically. So, not so before we get to investments. Yeah. Um, as a consumer who goes to the supermarket, who buys office equipment, yeah. Is, you know, is there any, is there any leverage there? Well, you know, I, I'm not a specialist, but I would say uh, the way we eat is certainly very important and eating lower on the food chain, as you've been uh, saying, that's very important in part because, you know, there's a big difference between animals raised in CAFOs and animal on the ground. Uh, you know, when we're talking about regenerative agriculture, there is a role for ruminants to play. Ruminants have basically created the prairies over time. And that's what, uh, you know, they have a key role in increasing the fertility of the soil, uh, right? So that's one thing. So if people don't eat meat, great. That's a, a great thing to do for the planet. If they do eat meat, they, may, they should make sure that is animals that are on the land, not in CAFOS operation, and they're participating in the regeneration of the soil. Uh, so that's one thing. The other one is, uh, uh, you know, look at the major brands and see which brands are involved with uh, deforestation or palm oil or uh, things like that. I mean, like the, uh, any ingredient that has palm oil in it is responsible for deforestation. So there, that would be a good start. Okay, great. So now, and so now as investors, so if I just, if I just have my uh, 401k and, you know, invested with some company or, you know, so with a money management firm or, and then I have my, my mutual funds and I'm like, you know, that's, I'm just indexing the market. That's the safe thing to do. That's the responsible thing for me to do. You're saying that I'm, I'm, I'm actually subsidizing the destruction of the planet of, of, of human 
habitation on the planet. Yeah, so, uh, and I don't know if I can share the screen here. You might have to give me a permission to do that. But I wanted to show you a little tool that is created by this uh, nonprofit, which is As You Saw. Uh, they have done really interesting work in terms of um, peering into uh, mutual funds and finding out um, whether they're participating into some of the problems. And I'll maybe just give the URL. If you uh, Google invest your values as you saw, S-O-W, you'll find the tool. Uh, And here, actually, yes. Invest your values as you sow. Yeah. So uh, here, it's actually on the screen now, uh, asyousaw.org. Uh, and they have a tool called Invest Your Values. And what you can find out is whether your funds are participating in fossil fuel problems, gender equality issues, gun, uh, gun-related deforestation, and so on. And what I've done here is I have uh, looked at Vanguard FTSE Social Index Fund, right, according to the lens of deforestation. And they get a C, which is a pretty you know, not good. <laughs> 17% of the companies in this fund are involved in deforestation, either agribusiness, banks and lender, uh, major consumer brands, and you can actually see them. So you scroll down and you find out that there are five holdings in community producers, four bank holdings, and so on. And these are the bad boys, International Paper, Tyson Foods, Etc. Bank and lenders, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley. Those are all companies that are involved in funding deforestation. And major consumer brands, Amazon, Procter and Gamble, the Home Depot, and so on. So, for example, if you're buying office supply, don't go to Home Depot. Go to a small store if you can find it. Anyhow, but this is a good tool because they can also look at uh, you know other things. So the same. Uh, fund is doing relatively well in terms of fossil fuel, not perfect, but they have a B. Uh, they are pretty good in terms of gender equality. Uh, they don't have any firearms or military weapons. So this particular fund, which is a FTSE, you know, Vanguard Social Index, uh, still rates pretty poorly in terms of deforestation. And I would say at this point, given what we know about the importance of land management and forest in addressing climate change, uh, we have to really pay attention not to support anything that causes deforestation. It really is an existential issue at this point. Mm. So yeah. I, you know, I've been thinking about this in terms of food and agriculture, but when you talk about, you know, the pa- paper is like the number one deforester, like, sh- right, we should be, what, like using bidets instead of toilet paper or, <laughs> you know. No, cloth, I mean, cloth. you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think... <laughs> I think there are a lot of levers we can use before going to a uh, situation where we give up all our conveniences and, uh, you know, we're comfort creatures. So, um, you know, just the effort of purchasing the right thing. So, for example, if you buy paper, I have 100% post-recycle paper for my computer, right? And unbleached. Okay, it's not super white so that you have to put sunglasses on to breathe it. But that's okay. Yeah. I can put up with you have your high albedo clouds for that. You don't need paper. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So things like that. Of course, use the toilet paper. Use maybe recycled toilet paper. So you create maybe a market for uh, recycled paper, which is great. You know, 
the problem with Amazon and so on is that boy at the boxes that we receive, you know, and how much of that is involved in, you know, getting deforestation because they basically buy uh, forest products and pulp usually to make all those boxes. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we can do what we can, but the big levers are really um, land management policies. I mean, revising, for example, the, um, the federal laws around agriculture, you know, the, the farm laws, the farm bills. I mean, that is really important if we try to support uh, regenerative agriculture in, in instead of the very destructive industrial agriculture. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the, 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 the current um, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack? I know a lot. Of, you know, uh, yeah, like, I, I have a little bit of problem with with uh, Tom Wilsack. I think he's very close to the big agribusinesses, unfortunately. So uh, that's that's a disappointment in terms of uh, the Biden administration's appointments, which have been quite uh, positive. I mean, and very diverse. But uh, Tom Wilsack is I'm not crazy about him, unfortunately. But you know, people can change and can be pressured to do the right thing. I mean, I'm, I was thinking that Biden was like a, a pretty boring choice, but uh, boy, you know, he has done some really good stuff so far. And so I think because of the pressure uh, from the outside, from the grassroots, and I think maybe Tom Wilson could be pressured too. Um, and, uh, you know, especially because the, the science is now clear, you know, that the way we treat the land is really key to our long-term survival. And I hope we get our act together. All right. Well, and so before I let you go, uh, let people know how they can find you and talk a little bit about your upcoming course. Yeah. So they can look at ek4t.com. Four is number four. And uh, uh, I'm teaching that's a that's course. That's for something for people who aren't going to. Oh, Essential Knowledge for Transition. So ek number four t.com. So essential knowledge for transition, or they can just Google essential knowledge for transition. That's my website. And uh, there's a course I'm teaching called Towards Aware and No Harm Investing. And uh, they can find it on my website, What We Do Courses. And then they can find a link, or maybe you can put the link in the notes. And I would love to have you include the link to the talk by Walter Yene. So, you know, I might have sounded like an expert, but really all of what I've shared is what I've heard from Walter Yenner. And I think uh, it's really worth and very uplifting to get this more expanded understanding of how we deal with climate change. Okay, great. So I'll include that. And I will say that I took the course and it was great and I learned a lot and it has affected how I, how I look at how I invest my money where, you know, before I was completely hands off and thinking, well, I'll just buy, you know, recycled and used stuff. And at the the same time, the funds that, uh, you know, are in my name were committing great harms out in the world. And and I didn't, you know, I still haven't shifted completely, but I'm 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 more aware as as the course is towards aware and no harm investing. So uh, I feel like I'm making less and less harm and more and more good. And wonderful. um, And and not doing you know and doing it in ways that can also be financially responsible for me and my family. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I you know again baby steps, but taking the steps. So you're on the process, and uh, I think that's great. 
And it, it is a great feeling to know when you get to a full no harm portfolio, to know that your portfolio is not engaged in any of the problems you want to see solved, including climate change, uh, you know, growing inequality and so on. So that's possible. And the start of the journey would be the course. So thank you for taking it. I think it was fun to have you. Yeah, I just I said this image of like, you know, the parent is seeing their child being bullied. And yet every time their, their kid gets hit, they give five bucks to the bully. Right, exactly. <laughs> We're, yeah. We, um, you know, there's so many externalities that we just, we, we live in a, within a system that's gotten too complicated. So I really appreciate your ability to, to simplify it and to apply I think, you know, one of the, one of your geniuses is your ability to apply a math and finance lens to these other parts of life that, that appear much more complex than they really are when it's really about inputs and outputs right. flows. So again, right. um, ek4t.com and I'll include um, all the links and every, all the books that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode. I don't know what number that will be yet. But if someone just does a goes to plantyourself.com and searches for Marco, there will be three Marcos. You are two of them. And uh, Marco Borges is the third one. And uh, the last one we did, I know, is uh, plantyourself.com slash 421. So um, if, 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 you, if you missed that one, go back and that will give you a, a foundation into, into uh, no harm and in regenerative investing. Great. Wonderful. Thank you, Howie. It was great to be on your show again. Thank you so much. And I hope we, uh, we keep spreading the message and uh, saving our, our beautiful little planet for ourselves. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Bye. All right. If you found that interesting, useful, valuable, uh, infuriating, you want to refute it, um, you can check out the sources at plantyourself.com slash 461. So let's see what's going on. We did a lot of gardening over the weekend. I'm laying out these uh, these beds with uh, with lots of mulch. We have so many piles of wood chips. Uh, Mia has made friends with all of the uh, the tree care companies in the area, and they know that they just need to drop a load of chips. Just come right up our driveway and dump them on anything that isn't a car. <laughs> and uh, we've got a ton, and they're all going to make their way into the garden. It's pretty good exercise, gotta say. Uh, so that's been most of the garden news. Um, we still got to plant some Jerusalem artichokes. I did, did I mention that we stopped keeping bees about two months ago? Uh, we just decided it was just too much work, labor, too hard. And so Mia uh, had a, a yard sale and sold all of our bee equipment, all of her bee equipment. And then like literally a week and a half later, our neighbor called. There was a swarm <laughs> Um, one of his uh, there was a swarm in one of his trees. And so Mia went over there and got it. And we still had one bee box and a frame and a hive. So we put it in there and like she checked on them a couple of days later and they're doing great. So guess what? We have bees again. So now we have to go and buy a bunch of stuff. It's like, you know, sometimes the universe tells you very clearly. Um, nope, don't do that. Don't don't change. Keep doing what you're doing. You're on a good track. So uh, the bees are out there. They're going to help us pollinate. Um, in movement news, um, I I ordered 16K kettlebells. I finally gave up because I have 12Ks and then I got 18Ks and I can't make the jump. The 18Ks are just a little bit too hard for me to do properly, to do with good form. And so I, I finally admitted that and got the 16Ks, which is only about five pounds less. Um, but... 
you know, it's five pounds, it's gonna make a difference. It's 10 pounds when I'm doing uh, doing doubles and um, played long, long game of, uh, of ultimate on Saturday. And the knee is feeling all right, although I did tweak it um, on Sunday when I smashed my head against the, uh, the lintel of the greenhouse and then buckled back on a knee. But all things mend or not. And uh, I just keep going. Last thing I'll say before getting to thanks is that the book that I wrote with Peter Bregman or the book that he wrote with me, the book we wrote together is called You Can Change Other People. It's a business book, but it's also a life book. It's a book about how to help the people in your life change. And specifically, I wrote it from the perspective of helping people change their health habits and destinies. And don't we all know someone in our lives that we wish would do better? And if you're like me, a lot of the time you spend trying to help them actually makes them entrenched in their bad habits, makes them resistant to change, resentful. And, you know, this book is all about how to break through that and get people to invite, accept, um, welcome, ask for your help in a way that gives them control, agency, pride, ownership and makes it very, very likely that they're going to follow through. So if you're interested in that, you can start pre-ordering. I think it's on, on Amazon. You can pre-order um, the, the release date is September 22nd. And we'll soon have, you know, the bonuses up there, things you can get for pre-order. But if you pre-order now, you'll be first in line for that. And that would be awesome. So just go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and search for You Can Change Other People by Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson. Yes, I am going by Howie. It's my new midlife crisis. No more Howard for me. Um, well, sometimes. And uh, you can you can get that pre order done. You don't have to think about it. And if the price drops between now and when it's released, you will get that refund. I recently bought a book two weeks before it came out. And then Amazon sent me 17 cents because the price had dropped. So no risk there. All right, let's get to thanks. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, 
Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.